Hey everyone, this is Brian Hertel, Marketing Manager for Amos Media and Editor of the CoinWorld Podcast. I wanted to let you know about a special offer we have right now. As a part of CoinWorld's 60th anniversary celebration, we are offering a free 30-day trial of CoinWorld's Digital Edition. If you don't subscribe to CoinWorld or you subscribe to the print edition, now is your chance to check out what the Digital Edition has to offer absolutely free. Our Digital Edition comes straight to your inbox, so you don't even have to leave the house to head to your mailbox. To start your free 30-day trial, head to coinworld.com slash 30-day trial. I'll also put a link in the show notes. Hurry though, this offer expires May 31st, 2020. Again, head to coinworld.com slash 30-day trial to start your free 30-day trial of CoinWorld's digital edition. Welcome to the CoinWorld Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Welcome to the Corner World Podcast. I'm Chris Bullfinch. And I'm Jeff Stark. We had a wonderful interview with Pierre Fricky, a Confederate paper money expert. And we actually had such a great time talking to him and it ended up running so long that we thought it would just be a fun thing to have it as a standalone episode. So please enjoy. Um, we delved into a lot of really interesting anecdotes from the history of the Confederacy and the history of sort of civil war finance in general. We hope that you all find it entertaining and informative. Yeah, we had a blast doing it. We certainly hope that you have a blast listening to it. If you are enjoying these, uh, we ask you, implore you to find whatever podcast platform you prefer and subscribe. That would be great for us. And certainly we're going to be able to talk about all sorts of great topics going forward. But Chris, you found a recent intersection in your daily life that really (laughs) parallels well, really fits right in with our interview with Pierre. Yeah, it was funny. The day before, Jeff, you and I sat down to speak with Pierre, I was, you know, I was getting coffee down in my kitchen and my dad had found an article in the Boston Globe magazine that he thought I would find interesting. It was a feature about economic history, but it also had sort of a numismatic component. It was sort of numismatic adjacent, I guess you could say. And they put it on and said, hey, you know, I think you should read this. And I said, oh, you know, that sounds, this, this looks interesting. It's, um, it was about a person named James Fisk, Jim Fisk, or Jubilee Jim Fisk, as he was sometimes referred to. He was a Gilded Age robber baron and one of the, you know, sort of a Wall Street financier. And one of his sort of biggest trades or one of the biggest moves, uh, economic moves that sort of made his career was he actually shorted Confederate war bonds right at the end of the war, early April of 1865. He had bought a whole ton of Confederate war bonds and he'd shorted them. So he was really counting on the war ending at a particular time in order to get his money back. And the article is fascinating. It delves into a whole bunch of different elements of Jim Fisk's life. It talked about how Civil War era telegraph operators actually cashed in on their advanced knowledge by buying securities and and investing in things or shorting things, depending on which companies they knew would do well based on the results from the battlefield. So it was really really quite a good article. If there is a link to it online, I'll see if you can put it in the description. I don't know if there would be a paywall or something. But if there isn't, then you'll just have to try to, <laughs> to, to try to find it. Um, but it struck me as sort of symbolically fitting that I would be reading an article about sort of civil war finance and, and specifically Confederate war bonds right around the time we would talk to someone who's an expert in that field. So anyway, that was just a fun little moment of my life kind of rhyming with the podcast. 
Yeah, way, yeah. So. And Pierre Fricky certainly is is an expert and an eloquent one. There is much to be harvested, much to learn in the era, an area of Civil War era financing and money and money substitutes. And we're going to continue to explore that and the vast array of numismatics uh, going forward. But now here's the special interview for this episode with Pierre Fricky. Chris and I are delighted to be joined today by author and dealer Pierre Fricky, who is a specialist in Confederate paper money, as well as some other areas of the hobby. Thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. So your specialty, as I noted, is paper money of the Confederacy. How did you come to explore this topic and what specific challenges does studying such material present? So I've been into coins ever since I was uh, eight years old. My grandmother gave me some coins in my high school years. And then my 20s and 30s, I bought and sold coins, collected them and things like that. I put things aside in the late 90s. I'm in the high tech industry. You know, the dot com boom was going on. It was kind of crazy. So I kind of took a hiatus from numismatics. But I did get deeper, more interested in uh, my, my history. Uh, my family's from Louisiana the New Orleans area. I'm one-eighth Cajun and uh, one-eighth Native American, Cherokee. Those two lines of my six, uh, my eight great-grandparents, those two great-grandparents, uh, one was uh, pure-blood Cherokee and one was uh, a Cajun. We're here uh, and their ancestors were here during the Civil War. So I was interested in that. I explored the Civil War period. It's a very defining moment in American history. It still defines today some of the challenges and some of the things carry forward through to today that we've uh, faced from that period and, and before. So that makes it a pretty interesting and a very momentous part of our American history, which makes it uh, quite interesting to deep dive into. I studied the end of the war stuff, of course. There's the social aspects of it from that period, which were not quite as, uh, as studied as they have been more recently. That's actually every bit as important as the war stuff. I actually had the opportunity to uh, both attend and be in a reenactment, Civil War reenactment in the late 90s. I can sort of say I was captured at Gettysburg. <laughs> <laughs> In 1998. <laughs> and, and, and you lived to tell the tale. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was in one of the Alabama units, a famous part. It was kind of a walk-on. And I was in one of Oates' uh, Alabama units that attacked the far left flank of the Union Army, which was uh, the Little Round Top, which is a famous part of that battle. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. We, we actually hit the 20th Maine. You know, that's Colonel Chamberlain, famous. And, I, you know, you draw a straw to see whether you get killed and captured. Now, I got captured. And uh, it's kind of cool. I mean, you know, I'll just say this. I was in a hardcore unit. We had nothing. It wasn't already there in 1863. Save the water supply and probably the replica rifles were obviously made more recently than you would never want to use an antique rifle in a reenactment. Yeah. And, and hold the dysentery. Yeah. Pretty, everything else is pretty much period. You know, that makes the, even the hardest core camping out look pretty mild. <laughs> if you want to get a, a glimpse of what it's like not to live in an industrialized society, a fossil fuel based society with air conditioning and all that other stuff. And hopefully we, we move past that. Uh, go do a civil war or even better yet, a revolutionary war, a reenactment and you get a feel for what people lived in those periods. So it was really pretty intense. And uh, I couldn't imagine what it would have been like if they were shooting real bullets. Uh, it was kind of intense enough as it was. But certainly that was a learning experience. I mean, you know, we talked about the war. You talked about, you know, you know, with these people that have been around studying this stuff, the, the slavery aspects, the social aspects, other aspects of it. I mean, the food, the scariest part wasn't even the, you know, they weren't shooting real bullets. The scariest part was the medical demonstration. 
<laughs> oh my gosh. If you ever looked at a medical kit from the Civil War, you'll you'll understand what I'm talking about. There's lots of sharp objects and knives and saws and stuff. Amputation uh, to somebody's arm off, but uh, let's just say I'm glad I live now and not then. <laughs> well, we certainly have uh, better treatments for gangrene and all that. So. Yeah, well, they didn't have germ theory yet either, and so they would do really bad things like you know wipe the saw off and use it on the next person and stuff. <laughs> oh God. Um, yeah. So I mean, that's a fascinating period. I mean, it was rough. It was tough. You know, there was some great things that happened back then. There was some ugly stuff that happened. You know, and everything in between. I mean, people were people. Uh, under the circumstances. And, uh, you know, the money, a lot of people don't realize this, but the financial situation in the Confederacy and the way they did their money supply was actually the second reason why they lost, in my opinion. I attribute slavery being the first. They freed the slaves at the beginning of the war, like some of their generals had wanted to see happen. They would have had a much better chance of uh, recognition by the Europeans and also would have probably had a much better set of support, probably from a freed set of people versus an enslaved set of people. So, when you put slavery aside, then the next thing is the finances, actually. And so that made it very interesting to me to collect that period and learn a lot more about that period coming out of coins. I had a great background, you know, crossing over from coins into paper money is not that hard. Uh, you know, it's paper, not metal. There's different characteristics, but grading has got similar characteristics. It's about eye appeal. It's about circulation. Their grading services are the same, you know, so it's not really that hard to cross over from uh, coins to paper money. And I didn't find it to be uh, that challenging at all. So you mentioned the centrality of paper money to the Confederacy's defeat, but let's wind the clocks back a little bit and talk about the beginning of Confederate paper money. So after secession, the Confederacy had to pass legislation regulating their currency, determining what constituted a a legal mechanism of exchange and all that. So how did the Confederacy's monetary system evolve and what challenges did the currency face both at the beginning and through the war? So at the beginning, they didn't really have an established system. The United States had an established coinage system. The United States, there was a coinage system in the South. There were three mints, well, two mints and then three mints when North Carolina seceded. Those mints didn't have a ready supply of gold and and silver. Those metals came mostly from the Union. There was gold mining in Georgia and North Carolina to some extent, but it was pretty moderate. So they could have continued that at that level. But the Confederate government wanted gold for foreign exchange and to set up a, a treasury. The Confederate government quickly decided that outside of some patterns struck in New Orleans and a bit of continuation of striking Union United States coins with the United States designs, they basically curtailed coinage uh, not too long after the war started, really, by June in North Carolina and even before that, I think, in Georgia and, and Louisiana. So they curtailed coins because they needed a specie for foreign trade. And then they went to a paper system. The paper system was financed through bonds. Bonds uh, that were issued out of Montgomery was the capital of of the Confederacy at first when they only had seven states before the war started. So for two months, uh, it was in Montgomery and they authorized bonds out of Montgomery. And actually, those were printed in New York City, believe it or not. They had to be spirited down south, correct? Well, not at first. I mean, before Fort Sumter, there was no legal constraints on trade. I mean, in fact, a lot of the northerners and things that people thought that was just going to blow over or maybe get settled out once Lincoln establish himself and they were negotiating. You know, Lincoln was talking about trying to guarantee slavery and the South really wasn't interested in any guarantees from the Lincoln administration, but there was negotiations going on. There was no war and trade continued on between the areas. And and North Carolina, Virginia, Tennessee, Arkansas were still part of the Union at that point. So the Confederacy with the seven lower states uh, from Texas to Florida up through South Carolina 
and they uh, authorized bonds, went to the National Banknote Company, I mean, the American Banknote Company to get these bonds. Some of these bonds were printed at the American Banknote Company. And then some of the notes, which are the famous Montgomery notes, which are green, you know, the green and black on white paper on high quality banknote design paper were contracted out to the National Banknote Company. And so the first delivery of those things happened before the war. The second delivery of that of those financial instruments were uh, delivered after the war started. And the uh, popular lore of that is that federal agents were running down the dock to stop the boat that had these bonds and, and paper money on it the second round. And they had managed the boat had pulled away before they could get to it. <laughs> so we have a few more $1,500 Montgomery notes and some more Confederate bonds that were uh, printed by the American and, uh, and National Bank Note Company that we might have otherwise had. They cool. captured the plates and uh, destroyed the plates and uh, basically pervade the American Banknote Company and uh, National Banknote Company from doing any business with the Confederacy from that point, you know, April 15th or so on. A little side note where there was a pretty good number of, of merchants and business people or some number of them that actually wanted New York City to secede. This is not very well known, not to join the Confederacy, but to be an independent city-state to trade with both sides as a free trade zone versus the tariffs that Lincoln was looking to raise. And that is one of the causes of the war and not the only one, of course, there's a slavery component and others, but the, the tariff system that Lincoln wanted to impose for taxation and build a stronger central government was something that would have favored the North over the South. And New York City merchants realized they could probably make a lot of money if they were independent of both. But obviously, New York City didn't secede. By the way, the, uh, the merchants of Perth Amboy, one of the major ports in New Jersey, wanted New Jersey to secede and join the Confederacy. But New Jersey obviously didn't get enough traction on that. And New Jersey didn't join the Confederacy either. So those first instruments were interest-bearing. They were sold to wealthy planters and people. Patri the people stepped up patriotically, turned in gold to buy these things. And the Confederacy got started with its funding of uh, having a specie base, which they would never use to back things, but they could use for, for negotiating uh, trade and, and selling bonds to foreign people over time. It was what the purpose of the Confederacy, collecting gold in its treasury and issuing these bonds and, and paper money. And so that was the first set of those things that materialized. Of course, the war happened. The second round of bonds and paper money came down from the north, and then four more states seceded. Missouri uh, actually had two governments throughout the war. It had its own kind of private civil war. Kentucky had two governments too, but after 1861, effectively, with the exception of about a month in 1862 when the South invaded Kentucky, uh, Kentucky was a Union state by and large, contributed about three-fourths of its soldiers to the north and about a quarter of its soldiers to the south. Well, hearing that New Jersey almost seceded, I'm now picturing uh, Civil War battlefield parks on the Jersey Shore, which would certainly have changed that show a little bit. But Well, let me um, interject there because I, I don't want to leave people to believe that New Jersey almost seceded. There was a relatively small contingent of wealthy merchants that wanted New Jersey to have the free trade that Confederacy was promising to avoid tariffs and things. Well, I imagine that was true of a lot of northern merchants. You mentioned New York, but I bet across states there were probably a lot of merchants who stood to lose quite a bit of business. Oh, they did. But there actually was a movement in New Jersey and New York City. New York City to be a free city state. New Jersey actually joined the Confederacy. But that was right. a pretty – it didn't have any wide support in New Jersey. I, I want to make that clear. It didn't – Right, 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 right. Get, Maryland had a lot more support to join the Confederacy early in the war to the point Lincoln had to put it down. Right. Using, uh, perhaps what you might deem unconstitutional tactics, but Maryland actually might have seceded. New Jersey never really was going to secede, but there were people in the wealthy and the merchant class that uh, saw the advantages of doing so. Agitating for it, would you say, or certainly raising the idea? Yep. So how did this uh, centralized currency square with 
the Confederacy's ideology for states' rights. I know there was some state-issued paper money before the war, right? The states and the banks. What did that look like right before the war, and did that continue through the war even as the Confederate paper money was in use? So before the war, we talked about coins. Let's talk about paper money. The paper money was not issued by the United States government. Paper money was issued through the banking system by the uh, chartered bank that was banknotes, basically. And uh, every bank, you know, went to the various printers, American Banknote Company, National Banknote Company, and a whole raft of other, several other companies, mostly in New York City, a few in a few other places. It would all be all these different designs and, you know, people, banks wanted to make their notes beautiful. So people would do business with them, make great advertising, and people would want the notes as well as some various uh, anti-counterfeiting things that uh, didn't work necessarily that well because a lot of that stuff was counterfeited and, and made up. The, the challenge with that system, and that was North and South, that was across the board from the, the late 1700s all the way through 1860s into the Civil War. And that system was not very good for the following reason. It was very fragmented. There was thousands of different designs and notes. People didn't really know what was real or wasn't. The further you got away from the town or the bank that issued the notes, the less likely it would be taken by anybody. It wasn't legal tender, so you didn't have to take it. So it was a pretty complex, convoluted system, and it invited a lot of fraud, made up bank, changed, altered notes, counterfeits and spurious designs, and, and all that sort of thing. It was it's a pretty wild kind of a, a system. Uh, so people like coinage a lot better than the paper money. Americans have a, a right not to trust paper money not only because of the Continental experience, but also because of the obsolete, what became known as obsolete banknotes experience. These notes in the South, at the start of the Civil War, these things were the primary form of paper money. There were merchant script and various town script in various places, particularly in the South. The South, uh, unlike the North, uh, the North forbade the states from issuing money. The U.S. Constitution forbids the states from issuing money. And it delegated that to the banking system and then, of course, reserved the coinage to itself. The Confederate Constitution allowed the states to print paper money themselves. So Alabama had its had paper money, Louisiana. Uh, most of the states had paper money. Kentucky did not. Well, Kentucky wasn't part of the South except through that one government. But Kentucky did not. Tennessee was overrun pretty quickly. It did not have its own paper money. And it used the Bank of Tennessee to kind of do that anyway. I'm from Missouri. I seem to recall seeing Missouri had their own notes, though, because of that bifurcated, you know, the dual ruling system, right? Yeah, Missouri was different than Kentucky. Missouri had its own, you had two governments throughout the war. Yeah, it, it was had crazy. Its own sort of private civil war. And there was Southern, there was Southern state notes as part of Hushell Southern State Catalog, you can see, and, and the Criswell catalogs before that. Missouri is, uh, has got a chapter in there with a pretty mm-hmm. uh, robust set of uh, paper money that's kind of int- very interesting to collect. Yeah. So Missouri had them. Um, Tennessee did not until the Reconstruction. It was a special issue. Uh, and then South Carolina used the bank of the state of South Carolina, did not issue state money itself, but used the bank of the state of South Carolina to issue money. But South Carolina also had issues uh, in the 1866 and 1872 during Reconstruction as well. The rest of the states had money. Some of it's really beautiful. I like Florida and Mississippi in particular. It has very beautiful notes. Some of the Virginia notes are really pretty. That's a whole fascinating field in and of itself. So the states issued paper money throughout the war. Generally, that was good only within the state or perhaps over the border, barely. Uh, you wouldn't go spend Alabama money in, uh, in, in Virginia. It tended to be used. It was used pretty heavily because there was no real alternative for small change. The Confederacy didn't print anything below a $5 bill until June 1862. So if you wanted notes less than $5, and $5 was a lot of money uh, early in the war, 
you use state notes or you use local merchants or obsolete currency. As the conflict wore on, was there an effort to try to streamline this currency system? You're alluding to this sort of patchwork of state notes, merchant script, Confederate government issue notes, and it seems like a dizzying array of currency. Was the South content with that state of affairs, or did they try to centralize it more to simplify transactions? Well, the North centralized it more uh, with the National Currency Act of 1863, which standardized the money designs starting in 1866 and created the national currency. So the North standardized out of a lot of that and never had state notes at either. They had a small change problem themselves, and there was in case postage and fractional federal currency and a variety of things the North had to do. But the Northern system was actually a lot simpler. Not only was it simpler, but the notes were good throughout the war. The South's biggest challenge was that the state notes actually were good throughout the war, but the national currency, a couple of different times, most notably in February 1864, they taxed the older series that you had to go turn them in and get newer series, 1864, because they were trying to control inflation and the growth of the money supply. I guess they didn't figure that if they kept printing it, that wasn't really helping. And they also had counterfeiting problems before 1864 as well that they wanted to tamp down on by eliminating those designs. So in the South, some of the series would expire and you had to go to a local depository, uh, which was a, uh, a bank federal office that was a ex- money exchange and exchange old notes for new notes. And if, if you tried to spend the new notes, especially after April or June, July 1864, you would have been taxed at 33%. So that forced shortages of money. The different series, there's seven series of Confederate issues, and they would expire some of the older ones to push people to the newer ones, especially in 1864. And that created shortages of money that actually caused significant problems with paying people to build things or paying the troops. And there's a couple of interesting stories about that I can get into that aren't very long if you want me to tell those stories. Sure. Sure. We'd be fascinated to hear them. So one of them is New Orleans. New Orleans fell to Admiral Farragut in April 1862. Before that, it was the largest city in the Confederacy and a very important city near the mouth of the Mississippi River. And they had the ability to build ships there. They were building an ironclad uh, called the Louisiana that actually was considered to be more fearsome than the Merrimack uh, slash Virginia. That was being constructed. But the problem was it was far, far away from Richmond, where all the money had to be issued out of. So despite the fact that they were printing money in New Orleans at the American Banknote Company branch renamed the Southern Banknote Company, and Jules Mouvier, who lost the contract fairly early on because of carelessness of shipping, they were actually printing Confederate money in New Orleans, but they had to ship it all the way to Richmond to have it signed, serial numbered, and registered. And then it would come back out and be distributed back out through the depository system and the purchasing of the government. The government distributed money by buying things in many cases. So, or the depositories would issue it when it was exchanged for gold or silver or whatever. So there was a shortage of money in New Orleans. The further away you were away from Richmond, the harder that was to get money flowing out of Richmond to you. It just took time. The railroad system wasn't that robust. The communication systems weren't that good. The North had a much better system on that front. And so New Orleans had shortages of money. They couldn't afford, they couldn't pay the contractors that were building this ironclad. So they stopped the contractors, stopped work. I mean, that's what you would do if you weren't getting paid. And so they went off and did other work or whatever where they were getting paid. And finally, the government got some more money down there that they could actually spend and started the project back up again, but they couldn't finish the ship. When Farragut steamed past those forts at Mississippi River mouth, he reached New Orleans unopposed because the ship wasn't ready. The Confederates scuttled it and blew it up. New Orleans was totally defenseless. Had they paid those contractors those three or four months that they didn't pay them and they kept work for those three or four months and they'd finished that boat, 
that ironclad and it worked well. Well, we don't know how well it would have worked in the Mississippi River, but let's assume it worked pretty well. Farragut only had wooden ships. He didn't have any monitors. The monitors weren't ocean going ships. So Farragut would have been blown out of the water and uh, driven right back out to the sea by the Louisiana. And that would have changed the whole character of the war right there. The Union may have eventually won anyway, but that certainly would have changed the dimensions of it and may have changed the whole, delayed a lot of things to where 1864 election might have turned out differently. Another story is a year later in 1863, General Grant was uh, coming down to attack Vicksburg, which was a fort on the Mississippi River, one of the last holdouts on the Mississippi River that was a a stronghold the Confederates had. Vicksburg sits about halfway between New Orleans and Memphis, Tennessee on the Mississippi River. Uh, I-20 now, as we know it today, runs through there between uh, Mississippi and over to Dallas, Texas. So if you, that in Shreveport, it's at that level. So Grant tried several ways of attacking. He actually failed several times uh, attacking Vicksburg in early late 1860s, early 1863. Eventually, he got the idea, well, I'm going to march down the West Bank and cross the river below and come at him from behind, where I'll get more maneuverability and won't be attacking through these swamps. On the West Bank of the Mississippi River, uh, Kirby Smith, uh, the Confederate general, had on his rolls about 80,000 troops nominally. The problem was he could only muster about 20,000 of them. Most of them, uh, many of them were sick from various diseases because that was going around. But the other problem they had was they couldn't pay them for the same reason they couldn't pay the contractors in New Orleans. The western part of the Confederacy had shortages of money because of transportation system and the way the Confederacy forced Richmond to issue the money literally by signing it. And so while there were state notes and things, that was the Confederate government army. That wasn't state or militia. So they didn't have state notes either, really. They couldn't even pay them with that. So the people went home to their farms and went back to their families and tried to take care of business the best way they could because they had no money to send back home to help feed their families. So when General Grant marched down with his 40-something thousand troops, Kirby Smith couldn't even muster 20,000, so he couldn't really fight him. And so uh, Grant came around and eventually captured Vicksburg. And had Kirby Smith been able to muster double what he could have mustered, he might have uh, opposed Grant more effectively and maybe he would have turned Grant back and that would have slowed that down a lot. So there's two places where money played a direct role in impacting the military situation on the field. Yeah, I've always heard that an army marches on its stomach, but you can't get an army if you don't have money to pay them. Those are great little illustrations of how history can turn on something that's as quotidian or, you know, as something is just basic as the money. We know that later in the history of American paper money and warfare externally, that the American government has counterfeited this has happened in Germany as well with the, the famous Bank of England notes that Germany was counterfeiting to try to attack England economically. Economic warfare, as it were, by f- issuing fakes is not a, a new thing. Was that at all at work during this time period from the north? I know there was the, the famous Samuel Upham, I think it was, out of the printer, but is there any sort of tale regarding that? Well, there's lots of tales. Um, How much and, of it's true? <laughs> well, we don't know for sure. We know George Trummel's got a great write-up in the uh, counterfeit Confederate paper money book uh, published by Whitman that I would encourage people to get to learn more about that. But let me just net it out. So there were enterprising merchants in the North that created facsimiles of Confederate notes and souvenirs. Uh, that's what Sam Upham did. He was very yeah. vocal about it. He advertised in the newspapers to sell the stuff. He put on the bottoms and the sides facsimile Confederate notes so he could sidestep counterfeiting laws of the United States. And so, you know, he was able to sell a lot of these things. There is no documented connection between Sam Upham and the United States government. 
That being said, Union soldiers, and even more damningly, Confederate parolees, released Confederate prisoners, exchanged prisoners, were found carrying Upham notes to spend in the South. Now, if you were the federal government, you really didn't need to spend money in the South. I mean, unless it was already an occupied region, you probably wanted to keep commerce going because you had occupied it. But Confederate exchange prisoners being released out of Elmira and other places like that wouldn't have had any money. And they certainly wouldn't have gone and bought counterfeit Confederate money from Sam Upham, but they were found spending it. So somebody gave it to them. Uh, (laughs) It could have been just soldiers that wanted to do it on their own and not sanctioned by the federal government or whatever. They had to be a little careful about sanctioning sanctioning counterfeiting because their own money was being counterfeited, not so much by the South, but by other enterprising uh, people. There was another uh, vendor, another uh, merchant that counterfeited both Northern and Southern paper money in uh, New York City, Winthrop Hilton. He actually produced a much better quality product than uh, Upham, and he charged quite a bit more money for it, like 10 times as much money. But it really did look, in some cases, was actually better quality than the Confederate money that was printed. And, that would uh, stand out. <laughs> well, a couple of them do, and some of them are pretty deceiving. But uh, you know, once you know what to look for, they're, they're not that hard. You can figure it out. But there's a few that are deceiving that were probably done by uh, not so much Sam Upham, but by uh, Winthrop Hilton. Winthrop Hilton didn't put his name on things like that. So you you really don't know exactly what he did, except we know he did it. Now, the thing was, is Jefferson Davis is really irritated with especially Hilton because his stuff looked too good. And so there was a Confederate sting that set him up in New York. The Confederates made it look like Winthrop Hilton was offering the services to print money for the Confederate government to print real Confederate notes, which had been collaborating with the enemy. And Winthrop Hilton was arrested for that very thing, collaborating with the enemy, trying to help supply Confederate notes to the enemy. Hilton wasn't doing that, but he was set up by Confederate agents to make it look like he was doing that. And he got arrested and stopped by the federal government (laughs) through a a sting that Jefferson Davis himself personally authorized. So that was pretty interesting. I mean, you know, there was a lot of intrigue around that. The counterfeiting didn't really cause a lot of inflation by itself. I mean, there was up to 30 percent of the money supply might have been counterfeit Confederate notes. But the Confederates were doing a good enough job printing their own, running their own printing presses. Um, and the block, and union blockade actually drove shortages, which caused prices to rise more than even the, the printing of money. Uh, inflation is not just a monetary thing. It's also a supply thing. And so prices were rising, not just because there was more money in circulation, but because there wasn't as much stuff to buy. But the other thing that really caused was panic. So people became nervous about taking Confederate money. They would go to depositories and get it validated or, you know, and it would cause it just created sand in the system and and reduced the effectiveness of the Confederate economics that hurt an already much smaller economy than the North anyway. And there was two big panics around Confederate counterfeit money, one in 1862 and one in 1863 that really did disrupt commerce more than cause inflation. That was the biggest problem with the, the counterfeiting. So you mentioned inflation and relatively widespread leeriness to accept paper money, which was certainly not unique to the South, but it became acute in the South as a result not only of counterfeiting, but of currency devaluation, taxing the earlier notes out of existence, etc. So how did the Confederacy overcome species or shortages? Or, or did they ever? Was, this, was it a perennial problem? You mentioned how not being able to pay their soldiers held the Confederacy back. Did a lack of specie and a lack of redeemability for specie really hurt the currency's acceptance? No, the Southerners were pretty patriotic, at least in terms of the Confederate for their region, for the, their states, uh, and for the Confederate promise. Most Southerners didn't have slaves. I mean, obviously there was a contingent that did and a contingent that supported that vociferously, but 
for the most part, there was actually a cultural war going on. The people of the South viewed the people of the North as, you know, they worshiped the God of money and the Southerners worshiped the God of Abraham kind of a thing. I mean, I'm simplifying it greatly for purposes of brevity, but there was a cultural thing going on too. So they willingly stepped up to support that. I mean, then there was the slavery aspects and all that sort of thing. And what Lincoln might do economically as well as with slaves, there was a lot of concern about that. So they would step up to the plate and support the money. So people actually accepted the money and the bonds generally. And the other other issue was there wasn't too many alternatives that were better. There was no alternatives that were better. And the only, there were the wealthy, the wealthy blockade runners and some of the merchants that were able to get stuff through the blockade that had gold and silver. You know, most famously, if you remember Gone with the Wind, when they were bidding on the opportunity to dance with some woman, I can't remember what it was. Somebody said $20 and somebody said $30 and that was Confederate money. And then Brett Butler yells out $200 in gold and it was stunned because $200 in gold was probably about $500 in paper money at that point. That was a lot of money, $200 in gold. $200 in gold today would translate into uh, many tens of thousands of dollars. That's $10, $20 gold pieces, whatever that's worth today. There were some unusual forms of specie though, right? Weren't some notes redeemable in in cotton? I seem to remember hearing some anecdotes about that. Were there sort of unusual non-precious metal specie notes? Not many, but Mississippi issued cotton pledge notes. Of course, the problem with that was cotton really wasn't worth very much because you couldn't get it out of the country and it was a huge supply of it. So Right, you, you couldn't monetize it. So you really couldn't go much. There was exports of cotton, but Compared to with the production of cotton, it was, stuff was rotting on the docks. I mean, Mississippi in its second round in 1862 issued Faith in the State, <laughs> which is not backed by anything. But, uh, <laughs> right. you know, they, so Mississippi did. Most of them did not. I mean, mo- mo- well, let me back up. Most of the state stuff was funded into Confederate notes. A lot of states and even some obsolete things were funded, fundable into Confederate notes. Confederate notes themselves were fundable into Confederate bonds that paid interest. So you could do that. And a lot of the Confederates notes said, you know, six months after a peace treaty with the North or two years after a peace treaty with the North, we'll fund this, you know, into bonds or something like that. None of it was backed by gold. Even after a peace treaty with the North, they weren't going to give them gold. But it was backed by uh, interest bearing bonds, theoretically, that it would you could exchange it for. You mentioned this uh, idea of convertibility to bonds and and payable after a victory. Obviously, there wasn't a victory. What happened to the paper money? at the end of the war, and then we can transition into how it came to become a collectible in its own right and have an avid base of fans today. It became worth less and less as the war progressed, especially as it looked like defeat after Sherman burned Atlanta and Lincoln won his reelection. It looked pretty grim. So the money deteriorated in value from $20 to a dollar gold to $30 to a dollar gold. And when Lee surrendered, it was uh, 80 80 Confederate dollars would buy a dollar of gold, you know, a gold dollar coin or, wow. or 80, 80, 1,600 Confederate dollars would buy a $20 gold piece when Lee surrendered. Uh, that quickly deteriorated to, uh, from 80 to 1 to 1,200 to 1 by May 1st was the last trade documented on some depositaries uh, form. I can't imagine someone actually took $1,200 for a gold dollar in, in May 1865, but somebody did. <laughs> An eternal optimist. <laughs> Well, there was still hope that Jefferson Davis could keep the Confederacy going out west of the Mississippi River in Texas and various things like that. But that was May 1st. May 14th, Davis was captured. The whole thing fell apart. So the stuff became uh, effectively worthless. But an interesting sidebar fact, if you um, take a look at what gold is worth today in terms of U.S. dollars, 
Do you know where uh, today's U.S. dollar stands on what versus a Confederate dollar? What time frame in the war that today's U.S. dollar would be the equivalent of a Confederate dollar in gold? <laughs> I, I, I'm afraid to ask. Today's uh, U.S. dollar is worth the same as a Confederate dollar a week and a half after Lee surrendered. Well, wow. that's heartening. Uh, <laughs> it gives me a lot of gives me a lot of confidence in what the paper in my wallet is worth. It's about worth as much as that cotton that was rotting on the docks you mentioned. A no, few it's ago. better than that. I mean, you know, our our paper money is not backed by gold, but I'll tell it's backed by military and nuclear weapons and oil. So <laughs> our paper money is backed by oil, which is backed by nuclear weapons and military. So it's a little bit uh, different circumstance to say the least. But that, it is kind of funny to make that quote because it stuns people to think that today's U.S. dollar is worth the same in gold as the Confederate dollar was worth in late when Joe Johnston was surrendering in North Carolina on April 20th or 25th. <laughs> so as collectibles, what do you think attracts people to Confederate material? You, you've shared a lot of fascinating anecdotes and historical episodes about this currency. Do you think it's the stories that attracts people or is there some other – and, and sort of the historicity of these things? Or do you think there are other elements that attract people to Confederate currency as an area for collecting? Well, there's a long uh, tradition of collecting Confederate paper money. I think is a lot of, uh, maybe, maybe a lot don't know, but, uh, but coin collecting started before the Civil War in earnest, I think in the 1850s, you know, stimulated by, I can't remember the general's name, Mickley, I want to say, looking for his birthday, large cent, 1799, couldn't find one and got interested in collecting that stuff. I've heard that story. That sounds right. Yeah. So that was 1850s. There may have been some colonial coins and things and colonial paper money collected before that. And so there was a tradition of collecting that stuff before the Civil War. After the Civil War, the Northerners, well, first of all, Northerners, you know, the soldiers captured and collected this stuff. They, they used it for play poker uh, at night. Sherman's troops actually threw money off the back of the wagons to try to disperse the freed slaves that were following them. The money was, you know, was embedded in, in our instinct as part of that period, representation of that period. So it became a collectible almost immediately. And it was actually in the Northeast is where the, the soldiers coming home to the North, particularly in the Northeast, was ones that where there was some numismatic tradition already in places like Boston and Philadelphia. Actually, that's where the first collections were formed of Confederate paper money starting in 1866. And pretty quickly, there was tree sizes written on the different kinds of Confederate money. They started figuring out that this stuff was, some of it was rare and some of it was dirt common. In December 1865, there was an auction in New York City. I can't remember which auction company it was, but there was a $1,000 Montgomery note that brought $4.50, a $500 Montgomery note that brought $2.50. Quite a loss on the money from four years earlier, but... You know, that was a lot of money for a collectible still. And people had already realized by December 1865 that those Montgomery issued notes were pretty rare. So they, people started collecting them mainly in the Northeast at first, where some of the first books were written about it. And John Hazeltine got into it pretty big and wrote some books. Uh, there's a guy, Raphael Theon. There's a whole bunch of people that got into this in the 1870s and 1880s. By 1880, it was a boom in collecting it. It spread to the South. The South was a little slower in take on the uptake. It was more souvenirs or more heirlooms to pass on in the family than it was a collectible in the South. And there wasn't as much of a numismatic tradition in the South because people didn't have any money. They were broke. They were, the war just devastated the South. So the numismatic traditions were in the Northeast, and that's where it started. And it spread around the country over the years. By the 50th anniversary, it became pretty popular all around the country. As veterans, as, as you can imagine, 50 years later, were, were old men. They were still uh, commemorating them uh, in uh, various events and, and the money had a, had a part of that was part of the story. So these things would be handed down, uh, not so much as organized collections, but as hordes, as groups, trunks full of this stuff, you know, grandfather saved this after the war and 
that kind of thing. A lot of that's been dispersed since then, but there's still some of that found occasionally. Some people, you know, viewed it as kind of trash. If it was the common stuff, it was considered junk. They would give it to the kids for play money. They would use it for wallpaper insulation. They would light fires in the fireplace with it. That's the kind of thing where it started. Some of the better stuff found its way up north and the collections were, were formed. It's funny you mentioned the North. That reminds me of when the ANA was in Boston in 2010, I think it was. The Boston Athenaeum has a, a fantastic collection of Confederate paper money. Yeah, that was one of those. I'm not exactly sure when that collection was put together, but it probably has its origins back into the 1800s. I do know the, uh, the Emmett collections in the New York Public Library was one of the first collections put together and was donated to the New York Public Library, I think, in the late 1890s. A fun side fact, one of the most, not counterfeited, but one of the most faked Confederate notes is, is a $1,000 Montgomery with serial number 297 because it was uh, created as a souvenir back in the 1890s or, or so, and it's been copied and copied and copied all throughout the years as a, an heirloom all the way into the Cheerio stuff and everything. Well, not yeah. so much the Cheerio stuff, but other kinds of packages like that. You get these calls, I got serial number 297, $1,000 Montgomery. I said, well, it's fake. I said, how do you know? I said, because the real one's in the New York Public Library in the Emmett Collection. <laughs> <laughs> There's quite a lot of those. You go to a museum, uh, many museums all over the, the country, and you'll see the the fake document type reprinted stuff. And that's very common. Neat to have just as an example. but um, Some of the older versions of that stuff is becoming a collectible. Some of the uh, stuff that was done in the 1880s, 1890s, early 1900s is actually worth money now. Not big money, but, you know, 50, 40, 50, 60 bucks. Wow. Well, the Cheerio stuff's, you know, give it away, but from 1960s and 50s. But uh, the stuff from 1880s and 1910s, that stuff's worth quite a, you know, some money now. Yeah. You mentioned uh, Tian. Is that how you pronounce it? Raphael Tian? The, um, Tian, yeah. That's a hallmark name in, in Confederate paper money because explain what he did and why the thing that he created, uh, I think there's only like six of them now uh, or about six known. That is sort of the prize for a collector, isn't it? That's one of them. So he was a, a Confederate, early Confederate researcher. He worked out of the Department of Agriculture, which somehow or another gained auspices to the uh, Richmond horde that was captured by Grant when Richmond fell. The depository in Richmond was where a lot of those old notes that had been canceled. Remember, I told you the 1863 and before notes were taxed out of circulation. Well, yeah. they would knife cut them or hammer cut, cancel them or punch holes in them. And those were stored at the depository. Well, the Richmond had by far the biggest conglomeration of that, literally hundreds of thousands of notes. And that horde was captured by Grant and sent back north. No one knew exactly what to do with it. So it found its way over to Theon. And uh, Theon started cataloging the stuff. And he was one of the early guys that wrote a book and built collections out of it. He also built presentation albums and uh, collectible albums for uh, presentations to, to dignitaries. These were smaller albums. And then he did a number of larger collection albums that represented the collection that might have been presented to somebody well-known or given to a library or, or given to a museum or something. There's uh, seven of those that survived. Those, those are the, the large Theon albums that represent about 400 and something notes. They represent all the different types and some of the watermarks and, and different plate letter combinations and stuff like that. And that's how you get the 400 and something notes. Most of these don't have Montgomery's in them. Theon sold the Montgomery's that were in that hoard off the back dock to make money. <laughs> Whatever Montgomery's were there, if there were any, there were probably a few. And some, of the, so some of the better notes aren't represented. Some of them have Indian princesses in them or, or, or Eagle and Shield notes that are worth five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000, but well, most of them are canceled. So they're not 15, they may be five or 10. Uh, so you might find a, a note like that in one of those albums. 
those albums uh, today are a representation of the state of collecting in the 1880s, and they were the epitome of collecting in the 1880s. Uh, the Montgomery notes aren't in them, as I mentioned, but sometimes there were these photographs, old-time photographs of them in there that in some cases are in there, in some cases aren't. And those things are uh, very, uh, very interesting, very rare. They've gone for anywhere from thirty dollars to, to $100,000, depending on the condition and the marketplace. Right now, the prices of those are down. It would be a good time to buy one if you, could, if you can get one, actually. So if any of our listeners are interested in starting a collection of Confederate paper money or just learning more about it, what resources would you direct them towards and what are some collecting strategies that you might pass on to them? I'm the author of the, of the current catalog, uh, Collecting Confederate Paper Money, Field Edition 2014 by Pierre Fricke. That's still available. You can find it for uh, between 30 and $40. That'll give you, there's a hundred pages in the beginning of the book that'll tell you how to grade and what the notes are and how they were made on sheets and give you some history. And each type, there's 70 different official types. There's a couple of uh, fantasy notes documented in there. We'll describe all those types and what they're worth using uh, traditional grading as well as a uh, third-party grading like by PMG and, uh, and PCGS, uh, banknote. I document some of the counterfeits. It's a much lighter weight version of what Tremble did. So that book would be the book I'd get first and read uh, the first 100 pages. It won't take you long to read the first 100 pages, but you'll learn a lot about collecting this stuff, and you'll learn a lot about the history. There's other books out there. There's the Schleybaugh now Kuha book uh, that was done by F&W. I don't know if they're going to do any more, but that's a good book. That's one of the books I started with. There's, a lot, there's more history in that. Uh, George Tremel's uh, Counterfeit Confederate Currency by... Uh, George Trumbull by, uh, published by Whitman. I think Whitman's still selling that book, so you can get it from them directly. Uh, that's a great book to get, and those are collectibles too. And uh, they're not that hard to tell once you once you get familiar. People, some, some people are nervous. Oh, there's all these fakes that were made over the years, and how do I tell? It's actually not that hard to tell. Uh, once you get a feel for what the money looks like and feels like, it's not that hard to tell. And of course, you can always buy certified notes as well and, and buy them from people you trust and know that are honorable places to go. There's not really any modern... Chinese counterfeiting thing or anything like that going on in this. These things were all hand signed and hand serial numbered. It'd be quite labor intensive to counterfeit them, actually. Counterfeits with printed signatures and all that are easy to tell. So that problem's overblown. It's not really that big of a problem with all the, all the fakes that were made over the years and souvenirs. It's pretty easy to tell almost all of them. So that, that makes it pretty easy. You get these books, you start off with 1864. I would, uh, you know, some people, if they got a lot of money, might want to jump and buy the rarest stuff first. I'd say don't do that by the uh, 1864, get an 1864 set of nine notes, the 500 down to the, to the 50 center. There's nine notes in there. You can have that set for uh, in mid to lower grade for a thousand bucks or less. And you can, um, you can get uh, the um, uh, uh, in higher grade, maybe over $2,000 uh, top grade, depending. So you could, do, uh, you could do a bunch of things like that in that range. So that's pretty easy to start, easy to do. It's if those things are available. Then you go back to 1863, 62, if you got money and you want to start and do a complete 70 type set, you start buying the Montgomery notes and things. Uh, the Montgomery notes would be, uh, you know, anywhere from 5000 to $50,000 each. The Eagle and Shield, T27, and the uh, Indian Princess notes are a few thousand dollars up to 10, 20, 25,000, really better grades. Most of the notes, you can get 55 of the notes for uh, under $500 a piece, actually. So... And a lot of them are 50 bucks, 30 bucks, $75, $100. So it's easy to collect. And you can get deep. You can get into the military issuers of the interest-bearing notes of 1862. You can collect them by variety like you do large cents. You can collect errors. 
You can collect the state notes, the counterfeit notes from the union, uh, Sam Upham and Hilton. Uh, so there's lots of different ways to explore this and, and get as deep as you want into the history. Awesome. Well, hopefully this has given folks just a good taste of the whole field and uh, maybe whet some appetites. I know that I myself have the 2005 edition of the book. Uh, you make me want to maybe get the 2014 edition now, so I'm a little up to date. I do have that edition, and uh, I've used it for a couple stories I've written. It's it's useful. So uh, we thank you for taking a great amount of time today to share this great topic, fun topic, and um, always love to hear the little stories behind the pieces. And and you really encapsulated a lot of that today. Pierre Fricke, Collecting Confederate Paper Money, Field Edition 2014. That's available at buyvintagemoney.com. We look forward to, hopefully, uh, we can um, convene at a show and uh, even look at some of these notes in person sooner rather than later. Until then, we do thank you again so much. All righty. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to our interview with Pierre Fricke. We had a great time talking to him, and we hope you found all the stories and anecdotes uh, interesting, informative, and maybe you'll go out and start collecting some Confederate paper money if you haven't already. And before you collect paper money of the Confederacy or any parts of the Civil War numismatic era, you should collect the Coin World podcast. Go to your podcast app and subscribe to the Coin World podcast. You will get every episode every week when this goes live. And that way you can build a collection and it costs absolutely nothing but your time. We thank you so much for listening this week and every week. And until then, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld or on Twitter at coinworld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. Hey everyone, it's Brian again, reminding you to check out our free 30-day trial of CoinWorld's digital edition. The offer expires on May 31st, 2020, so head to coinworld.com slash 30-day trial or follow the link in the show notes today.